This morning we are continuing a thought that got paused uh, during Advent. So I had done two weeks of looking at Jesus in creation. We looked at uh, Jesus specifically in Genesis 1. This morning we're going to continue at looking at Jesus in uh, Genesis. And we're going to look at him in Genesis chapter 3. I believe with all my heart that all of the scriptures are a unified story that lead to Jesus Christ. We can't cut off the Old Testament and say the New Testament is enough. The Hebrew scriptures from Genesis 1, and what I hope to point out this morning is that you can find almost every single major theological theme in the Bible in Genesis 1 and three, one to three. You can find almost everything that will happen. The rest of scriptures will continually come back to what first took place in Genesis one to three. So if we're going to understand Jesus and the ministry, the incarnation of Jesus, where should we start? Genesis one to three, which is why we're taking time to do this. Um, Just a reminder, this is kind of part of our new sermon series. After some time, I reflecting and praying, I'm kind of renaming it, and so I'm sorry to give you whiplash. (laughs) Um, This is just more clarification that I've had in my own heart and soul over the last couple weeks as as I've had some space to to chew on it and think about it. So this is where we're going to be headed, Um, and this is kind of what I'm thinking about this series, living in his story. Everybody say, living in his story. Say, I'm living in his story. Jesus is the author, the hero, and the completer finisher of that story. Every story that's ever been told, Jesus is the author, the hero of the story, and the completer finisher of it. God is the ultimate storyteller. God has spoken the very cosmos into being. He is the divine storyteller who is weaving every individual story into the pin ultimate story, which is the story of his son. Jesus is the hero of God's story and the main character. But Jesus is also the author and finisher of the story. He created the backdrop on which the story of the cosmos is being written. He has entered into the story through the incarnation, and he faithfully remains present in the story through the lives of his people. Over the next year, we'll be focusing on the story of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Our desire is to not only learn to see Jesus' story more clearly, but also to grow in our ability to see our own stories in light of his. As we steady and engage the story of Jesus, our hope is to become more like him. Jesus said to his first disciples, come follow me and I will make you. The Apostle Paul taught the early Christians that in Christ we are being conformed into the image of God's Son. Jesus continues to invite his disciples to follow, and he continues to make us into something new. So what we're going to be doing over the next uh, months is we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus, starting with the Old Testament. We're going to wrap up our time of looking at Jesus in Genesis 1-3 to this morning. Next week, we're going to have uh, an Overcome Sunday, which is a testimony Sunday. So we're going to hear testimonies from Ron and Sharon Whistler, and we're going to take communion. And then we're um, going 
going to jump into this series, and we're going to be looking at Jesus in the Psalms. We're going to look at Jesus in the prophets. We're going to look at Jesus in the Torah, um, and that will take us up to the actual life of Jesus. And then we're going to look at Jesus's life. We're going to look at his teachings, his major teachings. We're going to look at the major parables of Jesus. We're going to spend time uh, looking at the major prayers of Jesus and really honing in on the story of Jesus and trying uh, to look at our stories in light of his that we can be further conformed into his image. So just a little bit of review, because it's been a couple weeks because of Advent. This is what we looked at in Genesis. First, we started with this, that all things were made by him and for him. This is uh, Colossians 1, John 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus is the light of the world. The first created thing is light. So when God said, um, when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what's the first thing God made? God said, let there be light. What is Jesus? He is the light, the light of the world. So Jesus is the light of the world, and the first created thing is light. Jesus is that light. Jesus is the wisdom of God, or the logos. He's the word, the logos. In him are found all the treasures of wisdom. So that first week, we really looked at John 1 and Genesis 1, and how uh, the Apostle John was riffing on Genesis 1 when he wrote uh, the intro to his gospel. The second week... We looked at this, that long before the incarnation, Jesus was alive and at work in the world. And the second week, we took time to consider what it means to bear the image of the Son. So in Genesis 1, it says that God created male and female in his image. He created them. So God created male and female, you and I, all people who have ever lived, in his image. And then we looked at Colossians 1, where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So whose image were we created in? Jesus's. We were created in Jesus's image. And we're going to look more at that this morning and the victorious implications of that, which is a great phrase. Victorious implications. Say it out loud. Victorious implications. There are victorious implications to the Genesis story and Jesus's involvement in it. All right, so today we're going to consider how Jesus, as the firstborn of creation and as the Lagos of God, was already victorious over sin, death, and the grave, as well as the Satan in creation, in the creation account. Already in Genesis 3, God was preparing his people for the coming of his son, Jesus, the Messiah, and for Jesus' victory over the serpent. So let's get theologically nerdy together. Look at your neighbor and say, let's get nerdy. I like getting nerdy about a couple things, not everything. I'm not a math nerd. Um, I, don't, I don't like getting nerdy over math. Um, I really like getting nerdy over the Bible and over history. Those are two things I like getting nerdy over. So let's get theologically nerdy together. The early church father, Arrhenius, which is the American way of pronouncing that, um, argued, so this is one of the early, early church fathers. He argued for an understanding of the atonement that has come to be known as recapitulation. Everybody say recapitulation. This is an understanding of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. The idea goes something like this. This is an oversimplification, but for the sake of this morning's teaching, it should suffice. All right, the idea of recapitulation is this. Because Jesus is eternal and fully God, he has always existed. That makes sense, right? Jesus is eternal, so he's always existed. 
This is why Paul can write in Colossians 1 that Jesus created all things and all things were created for him. Furthermore, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. With this in mind, we can see that Adam and Eve were created specifically in Jesus' image, even though Jesus had yet to be born, at least in the incarnation. But he's eternal, and God is eternal. And so when he created the first male and female, and when he formed them from the dust, he was using the resurrected Jesus Christ, victorious Christ, as the image of God imprint in which he put all males and females. Really interesting. This, with this in mind, we can see that Adam and Eve were created specifically in Jesus' image. This is also why Jesus could confidently say, before Abraham was born, I am. How could Jesus say that? Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus did. Because he's from eternity. He's always existed in perfection as he is. All right. You hanging with me? All right. So theologian uh, Joshua McNall, who just wrote an excellent book this year on the atonement um, and looking at, at the atonement, he writes, For Arrhenius, Adam himself was fashioned in the image and likeness of the incarnate Christ. Thus, Jesus was not merely a son of Adam, but also Adam's source and archetype. At the deepest root of our expanding family tree, there is one greater than Adam, one who reclaims headship from our fallen founder and relives the human story faithfully on our behalf. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have been able to fulfill what we were created to be. There is one who lived to his completion. There is one who was exactly who he was meant to be. And so Jesus, in some sense, for all of, the, for all of us who are in him, has lived the perfect, complete life on our behalf. So we're bound into him when we accept him as Lord and Savior His righteousness becomes imparted to us and becomes our righteousness, not through our own works, but through his perfection and our receiving it. Does that make sense? This is the idea of recapitulation. So Jesus, the archetype for all humans, perfectly lived out in a way that no other human could, God's design. So this is why Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ. Was Paul actually crucified? No. Christ was crucified, and yet in Christ, we are bound in him in such a way that we can join Paul in saying, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. Who is it who lives? Christ, who lives in me. All right, you hanging with me? So at the deepest root of our expanding family tree, there is one greater than Adam, one who remains who reclaims headship from our fallen founder and relives the human story faithfully on our behalf. Since the Messiah is the mold for all humanity and the true image after which all of us were patterned, Arrhenius' account of recapitulation lends explanatory power to the idea that Christ may act on behalf of others. This is why Christ could die on our behalf. Christ could be crucified on our behalf. Because of this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so in who? Christ all will be made alive. All right, thanks for getting nerdy with me. 
Now I want to bring this idea back to Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? The fall. This is when Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, and their image of God is deformed. This is what God speaks to the serpent in Genesis 3. After, after the fall, he said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. All right, now let's focus in on this. What's it say? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, who's he? He shall bruise your head. Who's going to crush the head of Satan? Jesus. In Genesis 3, we have the first explicit prophecy about the messianic mission of Jesus to crush the evil one. Already. Isn't that amazing? In Genesis 3, already. I'm telling you, in Genesis 1, th- 1 through 3, you can find anything. Who created the world? You can find it in Genesis 1. How are males and females fashioned in God's image? You find it in Genesis 1 through 3. What, what's wrong with the world? Sin, disobedience, rebellion to God, separation from God. You find it in Genesis 1 to 3. Humanity has an enemy. You find it in Genesis 1 to 3. There is hope and a savior who will come and crush the enemy. Where do you find it? Genesis 1 to 3. The scriptures end with this grand vision of God creating all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. What is our imagery for the new heaven and new earth? A garden. Where do you find that? Genesis 1 to 3. I could go on and on and on. Seriously, if you want to know the scriptures, you have to spend time learning and knowing and saturating yourself in Genesis 1 to 3. So God says to the serpent, I will put enmity. There is going to be struggle between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. But he shall crush, as other translations put it, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right. I'm going to show a short video by the Bible Project. Um, If you have not heard of the Bible Project, give me the grand pleasure of introducing you to the Bible Project today. The Bible Project is an incredible project that's taking place where Tim Mackey is the brains behind it. He's a theologian. Um, He makes these videos with this team of people that they have made for every single book of the Bible. So there's an introductory video. It's like five to ten minutes on every single book of the Bible as well as major themes in Scripture. They are phenomenal teaching. They are incredibly theologically sound and profound um, and just a remarkable tool in our, in our age. And so this is the Bible Project's um, work on this idea of Jesus in Genesis 3, where we see him. So we're going to watch this video, and then I'm going to keep teaching. So if you could uh, play that. Awesome. Thank you. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? 
Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right, there hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this son of man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the son of man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives. And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. 
Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus style in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. Seriously, so good. They, they have, um, I forget how many videos, they're all free, uh, completely available to anyone to use for anything. They've given all of that away for free. So um, what I wanted to hone in on though, can you turn the uh, lights on for me, Lane? Thank you so much. I want to look at uh, Jesus's overcoming of the evil one uh, that we already see, his victor victory in Genesis 3. So just as a reminder, as humans, you and I bear the image of God, but it has been marred and disfigured. We were formed in the image of God, but our image has been twisted. Um, we become like the beasts that we were meant to rule over, like they talk about in that video. The more that we give in to temptation and sin, the more animal-like we become. Isn't that interesting? God designed us to rule over the animals, to rule over the beasts of the air, the beasts of the sea, the beasts of the field. And yet, when we give in to the evil one, we become like the very thing that we're meant to have dominion over. And Jesus, part of his victory, is reclaiming humanity. You may have heard me say this before, but I think it's so worth saying. This is something I've heard. I heard Christopher West say once. Um, you hear people say, well, it's just my human nature as an excuse to doing wrong. But your human nature is designed in God's image. And so it's the reclamation of your true humanity in Christ that you need. You don't need to become less human. You need to become more human. Less animal, less beast, more human, more Jesus. So as humans, you and I bear the image of God, but it has been marred and disfigured. We were formed in the image of God, but our image has been twisted and deformed. Now in Christ, we are invited to be reformed and conformed back into his image. The human image, apart from Christ, has become so disfigured that in many ways, humans are indistinguishable from other animals. Greed, lust, rape, murder, jealousy, anger, bitterness, wars, hatred, foolishness. That is just a short list of the things I could list that equates our behavior with that of the animal. So let's look at Genesis 3, starting at the beginning. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field 
that the Lord God had made. Who is this serpent? Where did he come from? Why is he talking? Very strange. Very, very strange. In this tree, or in this garden, there is a serpent. There's no explanation for where he came from. There is no explanation at this point for who he is. But there's a serpent, and he's talking. And Adam and Eve, specifically Eve, doesn't bat an eye at the fact that this serpent is talking to her. Very odd. Now, obviously, as living in 2019, almost 2020, um, with the full biblical story, we know, we look back on this character, and who do we equate this as? Satan. Satan. Specifically, and this is why I put the, uh, the word the in it earlier, the Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, the Satan. So this deceiver, this serpent, is more crafty than any of the beasts. Now, it's equated with a beast. So who is to have dominion over this serpent? Adam and Eve. Eve is meant to have dominion over this serpent. So is Adam. But the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If Parker Ford Church is your home, you've likely heard me said that, say this before, but this is, these are the two promises that every idol makes every single time we engage them. You shall not surely die and you shall become like God. Those are the two promises that every idol gives always. And at first, they deliver. At first, the idol will deliver. You don't die immediately, and you do feel more like God. The abuse of alcohol is the classic example of this, right? You abuse it, you, f you have a godlike sense of power, and you don't immediately die. But the more you engage it, the less it delivers, the more it demands until it has everything. It's taken everything from you. It no longer gives you anything. It has completely consumed you, and it will take your children, likely or it will attempt to. So these are the two promises that every idol makes right away to Eve. You shall not die. You'll become like God, knowing between good and evil. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of uh, both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I think this is the, one of the most profound statements that the scripture has to offer about the human condition. I've preached on that other times, so we're not going to focus on that this morning. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the servant deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then this verse that we're looking at, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Man, has that been true? (laughs) Just constant enmity and strife and struggle between that serpent and you and I, the offspring. Every day since that moment. And between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Son of Man will come and ultimately crush his head. So the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, they're waiting for this one who will come. All right, let's go back to Colossians 1. And I've been bringing us here over and over again in recent weeks. Um, Because it's so tied to this. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. What did the serpent promise would happen when they ate the fruit? They would become like God, knowing good and evil. And she says specifically, it says, when she saw that it was delightful to the eyes and good for gaining wisdom. Here's Paul's prayer in Christ. Not not doing the world's way, not doing the flesh's way, not doing the enemy's way. God does desire to give life. He does desire to give knowledge. So I have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The two promises of an idol, you shall become like God and you shall not die, are the same promises that Jesus gives. In me, you shall become like God and you shall not die. Isn't that so fascinating? (laughs) The same two promises. But in Christ, we don't take the shortcut. We take the way of death. We take the way of the cross. Paul says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. There's the fruit imagery, but redeemed, bearing fruit, not taking fruit, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in his knowledge, being strengthened with all power, Adam and Eve found themselves naked and ashamed, cast out from the presence of God. But in Christ, we are being strengthened with power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in uh, in light. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and banned from the garden, unable to enter in, unable to reaccess those trees, unable to be back in the cool of the garden with God. But in Christ, we are giving thanks to the Father, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The garden's doors are thrown open in Christ. And we step back into the garden with all of the saints in light. He has delivered us from that domain of beasts and darkness and transferred us in Christ back to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is where you live in Jesus. 
the kingdom of his beloved son qualified to share in the full inheritance of his saints. You are a beloved child of God, no longer kept from the gar- kept outside of the garden, but welcomed into the feast. You've been delivered, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How is this possible? It's possible because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. It's possible because for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, Satan, serpent, it's all created by God. And he has authority over them all. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What Paul is saying is here is the son of man who came and crushed the head of the serpent. And has had victory over him and welcomes us back into the garden. But not just the garden in its original design. A new garden made more glorious because of God's redemptive work in a fallen world. This is why C.S. Lewis says the second glory is greater than the first glory. The recreated heaven and earth is even grander because of the work of God than the original unblemished heaven and earth. Isn't that amazing? This is who you are. You are a saint qualified to share in the inheritance of light in Christ. No longer a slave, but a child. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith. So there is still obedience required. There still is submission required. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. For years, I've wanted to write a song to lead congregationally out of Colossians 1, and I've just been, I've never had it. It's never come. And just in the, like a month ago, I I was worshiping in here in the sanctuary, and I was meditating on this, uh, this passage, and I began to sing these words. It's so poetic and so beautiful. Firstborn of creation, Visible God created all things, has reconciled us through the death of his body of flesh. Holy and blameless, we stand before him. So I have a song. I'm not going to share it this morning, but in two weeks we're going to sing it together. Okay? So you've got to come back in two weeks and we're going to sing corporately this passage, Colossians 1. It's just straight from Colossians 1. So you can, you know, make sure you're here in two weeks. Be conformed to the image of his God. So what, DJ? So what? Why are we looking at Genesis 3? What does it matter for us? All humans are image bearers of God. But the Imago Dei, the image of God, has become hopelessly disfigured and deformed. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
So to be conformed to Jesus is to be reformed into our original design, only more glorious. Think about that again. To be conformed into the image of Jesus is to be reformed into the original design because who were Adam and Eve designed in whose image? Adam, or Jesus. Sorry, I'm all confused. Designed in in Jesus' image. So to be conformed into Jesus' image is to be reformed into the original image, but more glorious. This is possible because Jesus, the one with authority over all creation, has already defeated sin and Satan. And his victory already proclaimed by God in Genesis 3. He shall crush the head. His victory is available for all who confess his lordship. How much authority has been given to Jesus? Authority over America? Everything. Authority on Mars? Yep. Authority in that black hole that was photographed earlier this year? Yes. Authority in your marriage that's struggling? In your bank account that doesn't have enough? Authority in your health that isn't what you want it to be? Does he have authority there? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the Father, coming on the clouds. And his victory is available for all who confess his lordship. Here is the most simple distillation of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is the gospel in four words. Jesus, the man Jesus, Christ, the Messiah, chosen anointed one, is, always has been, forever will be, Lord. Complete ruler and authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the gospel. To be an apprentice of Jesus, this is from John Mark Comers. You've seen this before if you've been here. To be an apprentice of Jesus is to order your life around three goals. To be with him, to become like him, and to do what he does. Apprentices of Jesus are those who arrange their whole life around transformation. I've asked you this before, but once again, as we close, I want to ask you this. How is Jesus inviting you to be reformed, conformed, and transformed into his image in this season of life. As the worship team comes up, ponder this question for a moment in your own life. Make it really personal and really practical. I would ask the Lord specifically, how are you reforming me, conforming me, and transforming me into your image, Jesus? Go ahead. Close your eyes. Be with the Lord. What's striking me today, God, is that in, in many ways, the saddest moment in recorded history, the most devastating <laughs> moment in all of human recorded history is Genesis 3, where, where he, those first humans said no to you and said yes to their flesh, just like all of us have. 
it doesn't do for us to blame them. <laughs> you know, Adam blamed Eve, who blamed the serpent. This is not about pointing fingers at them. All of us are culpable. All of us have chosen to believe the lie. All of us have become like the beasts. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have transgressed your ways. But in the midst of that chapter, that in many ways is the most (laughs) devastating, sad chapter in all of the scriptures, you planted this seed of hope that he will crush his head. That your child, your son, the son of man, would come and would finally, by being struck, by giving himself up on the cross, by not fighting with a sword, but stretching himself up naked, (laughs) completely vulnerable, beaten and bruised, that by choosing that way in obedience to you, submission to you, drinking the full cup of the wrath of God, that he would overcome the evil one and the evil one's head would be finally and ultimately crushed. We know that we have an enemy who's still at work in the world, but we also know that we have a risen Lord and Savior who is already victorious. And our victory is sure in him. And so we rest in you. We offer you our lives as a living sacrifice, saying, here's my life, change it. Here's my life, speak over it. Here's my life, remake it in any way that you desire. God, if there is anything in me that holds myself back that says, no, I'll take dominion over this part of my life, you can have the rest. God, break me. Father, break us of that. We cannot define ourselves. We cannot make ourselves. Only you can make us. Only you can form us. Only you can name us and tell us who we are. So, Father, name us once again. Conform us to your image. Transform our broken lives. We stand victorious, not because of our own strength, but because of our risen Lord, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ. We bless you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and sing of our victory, his victory, and our surrender to it? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, grandchildren, grandparents, friends. May those words that we just sang be more than a song. May your entire life, God, may our entire lives be surrendered to you. A living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God, which are a spiritual act of worship. We surrender everything to you. Truly all authority has been given to you. And what's more, you're not like Nebuchadnezzar who demanded it and got it at the end of a sword. All authority has been given to you because you laid down your life. (laughs) A willing sacrifice. Though you were perfect, though no blemish or sin could be found in you, you ascended your throne, which was the cross. (laughs) A different throne than any person would have ever chosen except for you. And you made this brutal torture device a symbol of love and sacrifice. Blessed are you, Jesus, above all others. And worthy are you. For all dominion and all authority truly belong to you, including our lives. Which is why, once again, we ask that we would be surrendered to you and be conformed into your image. That daily we would be more like you. This is our hope. This is our goal. This is your purpose. We pray this in your authoritative and perfect, all-knowing and holy name. Jesus Christ is Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Go with God. Have a wonderful afternoon.